This is Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment, brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Monday, May 10, 2010. I'm Andrew Rinaldo at IATP in Minneapolis. New technology is constantly and rapidly being developed. The effects of these advances on our food system, however, are often not well understood. Today, we'll discuss efforts to strengthen protections against toxic chemicals that often end up in our food supply with IATP's Kathleen Schuler. Then, IATP's Steve Supan fills us in on how food companies and agriculture are using nanotechnology. But first, Dan Gruy from Compatible Technology International explains what appropriate technology is and how it can help developing countries maximize harvests while remaining sustainable, community appropriate, and environmentally sound. So, what exactly are the engineers at CTI creating? It's, it's post-harvest technology for bringing added value to um, to what farmers grow in developing countries, um, taking. Uh, what they already have and, and processing it uh, on site using simple grinders, threshers, winnowers that are generally hand powered and allowing them to work uh, you know, uh, without great deal of expense and without great deal of uh, technological know-how and yet bring, uh, bring added value to their product in a sustainable ongoing basis. Um, so how does an average project of CTIs begin? Do people approach you with a need, or are you out in research and development looking for a need that, that you can fulfill? Both. In fact, uh, we, we always have ongoing uh, research on, on new ways of helping communities throughout the world. One of our recent projects is taking uh, rice hulls in Bangladesh and f using them in, in a process to form a, a, a form of fuel that uh, instead of stripping the trees for firewood, now the folks, the, the farmers there can uh, utilize uh, uh, something they have in abundance, rice hulls, and, and burn it as firewood and then sell the, the product as well to others in the community. So that's one solution, but we've also been approached by people that, that have a need and, and try to find a solution, and we also have our eyes open for locating uh, solutions to problems that we're aware of, because we are out in the world, in countries all around the world, on the ground, um, meeting with end users of our existing equipment, and of course that exposes us to new, new, new problems that Definitely. we need to be solving. What do you find are your largest challenges in locating that need and in distributing your technology to the people who it's going to serve in the end? Well, and that's a big, uh, a big challenge because there's so much need throughout the world and we are not present in so many places. We're a small organization of uh, primarily volunteers. So reaching the people and finding the people that need our technology the most is, is, is a challenge. And uh, we're looking to partner with as many organizations uh, in the world that are on the ground with a similar goal to, as us to uh, solving uh, the problem of hunger and, and finding sustainable uh, solutions for um, small farmers and small communities throughout the world. So our, our challenge is to, to find those people that um, either come to us as volunteers or more importantly those organizations that are out there that can partner with us on certain projects. We've also been very fortunate to receive a McKnight Grant Foundation to work in uh, Tanzania and Malawi on uh, a groundnut project, which we commonly know as peanuts, 
to help for the next four years in developing small enterprises uh, among primarily women organizations, women-run organizations, for the um, commercialization of, of the groundnuts that they already grow. So, and that's a, a, a real feather in our cap, if I may say so, to have been recognized for our technology uh, and the promise that we can offer to that region. But we're looking at other opportunities and always open to partnering with organizations that have a need that we, we probably could fill. Great. So what, what would you say to someone who's interested in, in volunteering or getting involved or partnering? How should they go about um, approaching CTI? Well, first check out our website, uh, compatibletechnology.org, and, and give us a call or send us an email because uh, we're very happy to, uh, to share more information about our mission and about our technology. We have a number of great videos and, and slideshows and other information on the website, but if you have a real interest, give us a call and, and talk about where you think there's a need, where there's a way, a way that we might partner and work together. There's certainly many ways and we're, a lot of different ways we could work together. So and a lot of different organizations out there that I know would benefit by working with us and we'd benefit by working with them. So, Great. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thank you. Learn more at compatibletechnology.org. Not everything that finds its way into our bodies is food, or even an additive. Toxic chemicals and consumer products can leach into food and beverages. But Congress may finally be catching up. Kathleen Schuler, an IATP senior policy analyst and co-director of the Minnesota-based Healthy Legacy Coalition, explains the Safe Chemicals Act and what improvements are needed to make the legislation complete. In your blog on HealthyLegacy.org, you call the Safe Chemicals Act of 2010 landmark legislation. What is it that makes this bill so significant? Well, it's landmark legislation because we've been waiting 34 years with a broken chemical policy system. The uh, Toxic Substances Control Act, which was enacted in 1976, is failing to protect us. It's only required testing on 200 chemicals. It's only banned five chemicals. It really hamstrings the Environmental Protection Agency in their role of protecting the public from toxic chemicals. So it really needs to be fixed. And this is a good step in that direction to help fix this broken system. What are some reforms you see as absolutely necessary in making this bill complete from a chemical safety advocate's point of view? Yeah, there's a number of things that really need to be in the bill. And the bill that was introduced the week before last, the Safe Chemicals Act of 2010, contains some of those elements. For example, requirement of basic safety data for manufacturers. That is in the bill, and that needs to stay in the bill because that's really, really important. The EPA can't evaluate the safety of chemicals unless the manufacturers do the testing and provide the data to the public agencies. The other thing that's in the bill is protection of vulnerable populations. So pregnant women and children 
are especially a focus of that bill and that needs to stay in the bill. The other strong piece in the bill is the protection of disproportionately affected communities, so environmental justice communities. There's a requirement that action plans be created to reduce the pollution burden on these communities, so that's really important that that stay in there. Now the things that really need to be strengthened in the bill, first of all, there's kind of an easy on-ramp for new chemicals to enter the market instead of requiring complete safety testing before they enter the market. So that piece really needs to be fixed. Another thing that needs to be fixed is there isn't really clear authority for the EPA on the worst chemicals, so the ones that are persistent, bioaccumulative, and toxic. And we, our coalition had wanted those chemicals be phased out first. So there's a chemical prioritization system, and the worst chemicals need to be phased out within a given time frame. And it isn't clear that the bill is strong on that piece. And then the third thing that really needs to be strengthened is um, the National Academy of Sciences made several recommendations on improving risk assessment, and it isn't really clear that that's in the bill as well. So what's going to be the focus then of Healthy Legacy's work relating to this bill moving forward here? Well, we've been trying to educate the general public using our coalition. We have a really powerful coalition of 32 member groups and broad array of faith communities, uh, groups representing health-affected people, public health professionals, environmental justice groups, and and we've been, you know, we've been doing a good job, but I think there's a lot of people that haven't heard about this. So we want to, want to keep educating and we want to advocate for a strong bill. We want to advocate with our congressional delegation to support the strongest possible bill, and especially with Senator Amy Klobuchar, who sits on the Environment and Public Works Committee. So we definitely want her to become a co-author and to advocate to strengthen the bill so that we can get this reform passed, but have it be the best reform possible. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. See HealthyLegacy.org for more on safe consumer products. technology can be a powerful ally in increasing efficiency, production, and quality of products. Think of CTI's low-tech solutions for developing countries. Unbridled adoption of new technology, however, has its risks. The newest regulatory challenge is nanotechnology. Its potential is great, and producers of everything from medical devices to manufacturing to food are eager to see its promises deliver. But are the regulatory processes in place? IATP Steve Supan says no, not at all. Steve, why don't we start by you explaining what nanotechnology is? Well, nanotechnology is a description or a name for a bunch of different applications to manipulate matter at the atomic level. And a nanometer is one billionth of a meter. A human hair measures 80,000 to 100,000 nanometers to give you some idea of the size of what's being manipulated. For example, in synthetic biology or nanogenomics, the DNA structure is is cut up into little pieces by enzymes, and these are engineered, for example, to produce a enzyme that will mimic how termites digest wood to produce sugars for cellulosic biofuels. And there are other techniques to take very, very 
tiny particles and make them into tubes that can be used to reinforce materials such as steel or even plastic. There's a broad, broad array of product applications for different nanotechnologies. In the areas of agriculture and food, what are companies who are investing in nanotechnology, what types of applications are they developing? And, and generally speaking, the categories of these products are nano coatings that you put on fruits and vegetables to extend their shelf life. There are nanomaterials put in, uh, in pesticides to try to reduce the volume of pesticides while increasing the surface contact between the pesticide and, uh, and the plant. There are some more kind of exotic applications that are reportedly in a research stage, such as uh, mixing nanoparticles into ice cream to give you that kind of full, creamy, mouthy feel without the calories. And then there are uh, some applications for targeting nanoparticles to kill specific pathogens. I don't quite understand this application, I mean, how they target them, but the, the mode of giving these, these kind of nano-veterinary medicines would be through animal feed. So very much as uh, antibiotics are now put in animal feed, these nanoparticles could be put into animal feed to target avian influenza or E. coli pathogens. Those are a couple of the pathogen targets that have been discussed in the literature. What are some of the concerns that that some have raised about either environmental risks or human health risks related to nanotech and nanoparticles? Well, thus far, the studies that are in the public domain that are not industry studies, that are not subject to the confidential business information claims of the companies, largely concern respiratory problems resulting when, when workers who work with nanoparticles inhale these. At a meeting I was at in Washington, D.C. at the end of April, there was a report of the first two confirmed deaths by the Chinese government. These were confirmed by the Chinese government of workers who had inhaled nanoparticles. Surprisingly, or at least to my surprise, there are very, very few gastrointestinal studies of what happens when you ingest nanoparticles, either human or or animal. The very few studies that are in the public domain are, are worrisome. They suggest that there could be cancerous lesions caused as a result of the ingestion of nanoparticles. In environmental health, I think there may be even less that's been done. So, for example, if enzymes were bred into cellulosic materials for biofuels, there's really no study of what would happen if those plant genes then outcrossed. You'd have you know, enzyme genes outcrossing into wild or domesticated plants. So that's all very conjectural at this point. So is there talk about a developing a more comprehensive regulatory structure, both within the U.S.? What are the proposals there? And then also internationally, is this a topic of discussion? Well, in the United States, at the beginning of the year, two senators, and now I can't, I can't remember the names, one is Senator Cardin of Maryland, introduced the Nanotechnology Safety Act of 2010, which would dedicate $25 million specifically to study environmental health and safety consequences of using nanoparticles. This is the first bill to mandate environmental health and safety studies. 
more general nanotechnology legislation in the United States, if it begins, it'll probably start with putting in a, a nanotechnology chapter or a title in the revision of the Toxic Substances Control Act, which hasn't been revised since it was passed in 1967, or it hasn't been revised in any very fundamental way. So that's what would happen in the United States. Internationally, there are not yet standards for nanotechnology. There's discussion of these standards for <clears throat> industrial applications in the International Organization for Standardization. In food and agriculture, the World Health Organization and the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization held their first expert meeting in June of 2009. And in February of this year, they, they produced a report about this meeting, which indicates that they are going to try to develop standards for food applications of nanotechnology that will be using the risk analysis framework of, of the Codex Elementarius Commission. Great. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. Radio Sustain's engineer is Patrick Sai. The music on the program was Tall Fiddler by Deo, Wind by Gospel Gossip, We Used Technology But Technology Let Us Down by Mouse House, and Arrivals, Departures by Vox Vermilion. I'm Andrew Ranallo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.